Uh, welcome to all of you who are here, and welcome to those of you who will be watching. Uh, as has already been mentioned, I am not the pastor, so if you're visiting, um, don't pass judgment on the church based on this. For six or seven years, I don't remember exactly for sure, I was served as an elder uh, in this church, and I've always managed to avoid preaching until today. My time in Prague is coming to an end, and so Pastor Mike requested that before I go, um, that I preach one Sunday. Um, <clears throat> joking aside, though, I, I am honored uh, to be here today. It's very common uh, for people to have this notion that God in the Old Testament was just about wrath and, and judgment, and that God in the New Testament is just about love. And that is not true. The New Testament has a lot to say about judgment. For example, read through the book of Revelation. There's a lot of judgment there. As you read through the Gospels, if you pay careful attention to Jesus' teaching, you will see that he spends a lot more time talking about hell than he does about heaven. And the Old Testament has many instances where God's love is displayed. Jesus was not the first person to say, love your neighbor as yourself. He was quoting from the Old Testament. He was quoting from Leviticus. And out of God's love comes mercy. And that phrase, have mercy, it occurs 44 times in the New International Version. About half of those are in the Old Testament, the other half are in the New. In the Old Testament, most of those references where the phrase have mercy is used are found in the Psalms. And it's when someone is coming to God and is crying out to be rescued. In the New Testament, most of those uh, references are found in the Gospels. And it's usually when somebody comes to Jesus and is asking to be healed. The word mercy by itself occurs 126 times in the NIV. It's a very common word in the Bible. And though mercy is the theme for this message, the word mercy does not appear in the text that we will look at today. As a matter of fact, for some of you, it might be a stretch to even find the concept of mercy in this passage. Um, but I hope that you will see it from another point of view, um, as I have as I've been looking at it. I'm going to be reading a lot of scripture this morning. That's what you do when you don't really have anything to say. Um, <clears throat> and so we'll start uh, by reading from Numbers chapter 14. And we'll start with verse 26. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, How long will this wicked community grumble against me? I have heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites. So tell them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very thing I heard you say. In this wilderness, your bodies will fall. Every one of you, 
20 years old or more, who was counted in the census and who has grumbled against me, not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. As for your children that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them in to enjoy the land you have rejected. But as for you, your bodies will fall in this wilderness. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies lies in the wilderness. For 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days you explored the land, you will suffer for your sins and know what it is like to have me against you. I, the Lord, have spoken. And I will surely do these things to this whole wicked community, which is banded together against me. They will meet their end in this wilderness. Here they will die. So, mercy is not the word that comes to mind when we read this text. And so, since there are more than a hundred verses that do mention mercy, why choose this text to talk about mercy? Well, in my preparation, it was actually the other way around. First, I chose this text. I've, it's always intrigued me. It's central to the history of Israel. It's central to God's work in the Old Testament. And it plays a major part in one of the themes in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. And so I chose this text first, and then as I spent time in it, I decided to talk about mercy. Let's see why. Growing up, my family always went to church, and so I heard this story as a very young child, probably in Sunday school, probably before I could read it for myself. And I also remember my early impression from this story. I thought this judgment was really severe. Over the years, from time to time, as I read this story again, that same thought occurred to me. This is really harsh. God decided that some of the people would not experience his promise. And that the rest of them were going to have to wait 40 years before they could experience that promise. Now, 40 years is a long time to wait. And again, from my perspective, as a five-year-old, say, hearing this story, I mean, 40 years, that's, that's like eternity. That's like it's never going to happen. I mean, again, to put it in perspective, when I was five years old, my dad was 27 years old. And in my mind, 27 is unimaginably old, right? I mean, it's my dad, right? And 40 is a lot more than 27. Well, this last week, I had my 67th birthday. 40 years is clearly not eternity. (laughs) It might be a long time, but it's not outside the realm of my experience. A 40-year delay is not forever. 
Is that why God's judgment is merciful? Not really. Although it could be. I mean, God could have had them stay in the wilderness even longer. Time definitely changes our perspective. But I think a deeper look into this episode reveals not just God's judgment, but it reveals, as Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4, it reveals a God who is rich in mercy. How is condemning people to wander in the desert for 40 years merciful? Some might argue that it would have been more merciful for all of them to have died immediately. That is not true. In God's ordering of the world, suffering is never without meaning. Suffering is not random. It's not accidental. It is not without purpose. Let's go back and fill in some of the background that brought Israel to this point. About two years before this, the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. And they had been for many generations. And God heard their cry for deliverance, and he sent Moses to bring them out. But the ruler of Egypt was called the Pharaoh. He was not willing to let them go. And so over a period of time, God punished Egypt with ten plagues. Finally, Pharaoh decided to let them go. But soon after they left, he changed his mind. And he sent his army out to bring them back. And Israel was trapped between the Egyptian army and the Red Sea. But God miraculously parted the sea. Israel walked across. And when Pharaoh's army followed, the waters returned and the army was drowned. Israel was saved. And over the next several months, through Moses, God gave Israel the Ten Commandments and the plans for the tabernacle, the tent where God's presence dwelt and where Israel gathered to worship him. In that tent was the Ark of the Covenant, also called the Ark of God. Pastor Mike spoke of the Ark in his sermon last week on the life of David, the Ark that David was bringing into the city of Jerusalem. That was the very same object that God had instructed the Israelites to make many centuries before when they came out of Egypt. And when they left Egypt, God made a promise to the people that is recorded in Exodus chapter 6. We read in verse 6, Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. And so after all of this, Israel arrived at the border of this promised land. And we read in Numbers chapter 13, 
The Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. So at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out from the desert of Paran. All of them were leaders of the Israelites. And then skipping down to verse 25, we read, At the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. And they gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us. And it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful. The cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Annika there. And verse 29 gives this list of all the nations, all the peoples that lived in the land. And apparently... Uh, the people, the Israelites, became quite upset at this point because we read in verse 30, then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and he said, we should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. However, Caleb's counsel was ignored because we read in chapter 14, that night, All the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. And so that brings us to the text that we read earlier this morning. God decided that they would stay in the wilderness for 40 years. Several times in the course of their journey, the Israelites declared that their intention was to return to Egypt. I find it interesting that it's not recorded that any of them ever did. So, was that just a bluff? to try and manipulate Moses? Could be. I don't know. This was not the first time, nor was it going to be the last time that Moses' leadership was challenged. At one point, even his own brother and sister questioned whether or not he was qualified for leadership. But going back to Egypt, this was not an option. Dying in the wilderness? Okay. God says, if you're not willing to trust me, to keep my promise and give you this land, I will give you what you ask for, to die in the wilderness. But how is this merciful? Wandering in the desert for 40 years sounds like it's a rather severe punishment. Well, what exactly is mercy? Well, I would define it this way. Mercy is when God, out of his love and compassion, withholds the deserved dire consequences from people who have sinned. 
It's God withholding the bad consequences for people's sin because he loves people and he has compassion. God told Moses that what he should do is have all the people die right now and God would start over with a new nation from Moses' descendants. Now, Moses responds to that suggestion in verse 17, where he says, Now, may the Lord's strength be displayed just as you have declared. And I find this so interesting. How is the Lord's strength displayed? With wrath and judgment? No. What does he say? In verse 18, he says, The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love, forgiving sin and rebellion. That is how the Lord's strength is displayed. But Moses goes on. He says, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people, just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. And God responds in verse 20. The Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you ask. Nevertheless, as surely as I live, as surely as the glory of the Lord fills this whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land. I promised on oath to their ancestors. Did they deserve to be wiped out? Well, the people of Israel had witnessed the most amazing demonstrations of God's power in the history of humanity. But they gave in to fear. They did not believe that God would help them conquer the land that was promised. They had witnessed... God sent 10 plagues on the people of Egypt with devastating results, and yet, even though they also lived in Egypt, they were never harmed. They had seen God miraculously deliver them and let them escape across the Red Sea and witness the destruction of the Egyptian army. Every day, they saw God's miracle when he provided manna, the bread of heaven, for them to eat. They had been given water that flowed out of rocks in the middle of the desert. All of this they had witnessed. Yet they decided to return to slavery in Egypt because of their unbelief and rebellion. It might be hard for us to feel like they deserve to be wiped out, but we have to agree they were guilty. To spurn God's deliverance, and go back to being slaves, that was a rejection of God himself. Now, we have to be careful because we ourselves, we are not above rejecting God's deliverance. Fear is a part of our fallen human nature. The Israelites were faced with incredible uncertainty. Out of fear, it was easier for them to turn back to something they knew, even though it meant being slaves. How often have we rejected God 
because we were afraid to move on to something new, because we were more comfortable with staying with what we're familiar with. I see five ways that the wilderness wandering was merciful. First, they were still free from slavery. God was merciful. He delivered them out of slavery and he was not going to let them return to slavery. Returning to Egypt would not have just been slavery for them, but it would have been slavery for their children and for future generations. Yes, they were in the desert, but God was merciful. They were not slaves, and their children would not be slaves. Second, they got to live. And yes, it's in the desert, but they didn't have to be concerned about food. They didn't have to be concerned about water. God provided for them. They had shade from the cloud during the day. God was a pillar of fire during the night. And they weren't really wandering. I mean, God showed them where to go when they moved from one place to another. The tabernacle gave them this tangible place where they could be in God's presence and meet with him. They were not alone. Third, ironically, it is what they ask for. Having chosen not to trust God, they saw two possibilities. Go back to Egypt, die there. Stay in the wilderness, die there. God was merciful. He gave them the best option. Returning to Egypt would have meant returning to slavery. Dying in the desert was better than dying as a slave. Fourth, by waiting 40 years until the older generation had all died, the children, they got to live. By being able to live for up to 40 more years, they got to be a part of their children's lives as the children grew up. They got to see their grandchildren born and grow up. And in some cases, some of them got to see their great-grandchildren now, I don't have any kids myself, but I have heard that having grandchildren is one of the great joys of being a parent. Now, they would never experience the fulfillment of God's promise to live in the land, but their children would. They had no hope for themselves, but they had hope for their children. To make sacrifices with the hope that children will have a better life, is very powerful. All over the world, at the borders between countries, we see thousands of parents who are willing to leave their homeland for the chance of a better life for their children. About 100 years, 110 years ago, that desire moved my father's parents to leave Europe for the United States. I find it ironic that 100 years later, I moved back to Europe. That has nothing to do with this message. It's just an interesting idea that popped into my head as I was thinking about this. <clears throat> Fifth, the people had time to become a nation. As I mentioned earlier, suffering is not pointless from God's viewpoint. 
God always has purpose when he allows suffering, though it can be very difficult for us to understand that purpose at the time. I think this is an example of what it means to live by faith. When we, someone we know, someone we care about, is going through suffering, by faith we believe that God is at work, that there is purpose there, that something good will come. Suffering is not meaningless. A few weeks ago, Pastor Mike told us that Israel's wandering experience allowed them to grow into a nation. They became a nation that knew how to trust God. They became a nation that knew how to worship God. And they became a nation with an army that with God's help in 40 years, they would be able to conquer the land that was promised. And keep in mind, these are people, when they were in Egypt, their skill set basically existed of two things, herding sheep and making bricks out of mud. You know, they were not soldiers, but they had time to learn how to be an army. And there was time for a new leader to learn how to lead. Joshua would have time to learn how to trust in God's provision, and he would have time to learn how to be a leader from Moses' example. Last week, Pastor Mike pointed out that in many cases, God has used a wilderness experience to prepare a leader for what was coming. Moses himself had already spent 40 years of his life as a shepherd before God called him to lead Israel out of Egypt. And as we've learned by, looking, uh, by listening to uh, Mike's sermons the last few weeks, David spent years in the wilderness hiding from King Saul and God taught him how to be a king that was dependent on God. Elijah spent months in the wilderness during the drought in Israel in preparation for the confrontation with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days at the start of his ministry. The Apostle Paul was in the desert for three years after his conversion to Christ, where he learned how to be a missionary, and a theologian. Yes, Israel was suffering in the wilderness for their sin, for the rejection of God's promise, but God in his mercy prepared them to be a nation that could occupy the land of promise. And so God was merciful, but as Moses said, God does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. And so their children, the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren, they were delayed from experiencing the land of promise. They suffered for the disobedience of their parents. But their suffering was not without hope. Unlike their parents, they had hope that they would live in the promised land. God was not being vindictive. This is the natural consequence of events playing out. Their parents didn't want to go into the land. Okay, won't go. But we're going to have to wait till all of you are dead, and then your children can go. God was not vindictive. It was just the way things had to work out. This happens in our own day. 
we see children whose lives are difficult because of the sinful, sinful choices that are made by parents. However, and please hear me, however, this does not mean that every time we see children suffering, that that suffering is because of parents' sin. That is not true. Think of John chapter 9. The man who was born blind was brought to Jesus, and Jesus was asked, why is it, was this man born blind? Is it because he sinned or because his parents sinned? And the short answer is, basically, Jesus said, you're asking the wrong question. Okay? Suffering is way too complicated to have some simple, simplistic explanation for what it's its cause. God does forgive those who are repentant, but that doesn't, nat- that doesn't necessarily stop the natural order of events. So what does all this have to do with us? Well, I think a lot of times when we think of mercy, uh, it brings to mind this warm, cozy, uh, feel-good sentiment. Well, this story does not leave us with that kind of feeling, even though this story is full of mercy. When we consider our own lives, God's mercy toward us, it doesn't necessarily leave us with warm, fuzzy feelings either. If we remember the cruel suffering that Jesus endured in order to bring us our salvation. Unlike the Israelites, in our situation, we who are also guilty of rebellion, we do escape punishment. We don't have to suffer for 40 years and not receive God's promise. God has not only shown us mercy by not giving us what we deserve, but he has also given us his grace. God has not only withheld the punishment that we deserve, but he's also given us incredible good gifts that we don't deserve. He has given us new life in Christ. This is grace. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Moses could ask for mercy for the people. And he could ask that God forgive them. But Moses could not do what Jesus did for us. Jesus took our punishment. Jesus gave his life so that we don't have to die without hope in the wilderness. Moses couldn't do that for the Israelites. And even though we are guilty of sin and rebellion, we do receive what was promised. We receive the Holy Spirit, new life in Christ, both now and for eternity. We have received both God's mercy and his grace. Thanks be to God. The question is, are you willing to go beyond what Moses asked for? Are you willing to not only ask for mercy, are you willing to take God's gracious offer of new life in Christ? Are we willing to fully immerse our lives into living with Jesus? 
Jesus is not just for Sunday morning. If we are a follower of Jesus, the work that we do on Monday and the rest of the week, that is work that's also done for Jesus. If colleagues and friends know that we are followers of Jesus, then work that is well done brings honor and glory to God. When we show mercy and grace to others, we honor the mercy and grace that God has given to us. And so, we're thankful for God's mercy. But are we willing to live for Christ? If you have questions about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, please come talk to me, talk to one of the other elders, one of the other people who was up here earlier. Because I would hope that each one of you would be willing to walk with Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you that we have benefited not only from your mercy, not only from not receiving what we deserve, but we also benefit from your grace. We have received things that we don't deserve. By the power of your Holy Spirit, we ask for your help to live as we ought. We ask for wisdom to know how to show mercy and grace to others. We desire to do our work well and honor you so that you would be glorified. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.